22, verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that now as we study this passage of Scripture, we are taught the model of faith that Abraham had and how you tested that faith. Thank you for this example that you have preserved in Scripture. Thank you too, Lord, for the implications of this for our faith and for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that we'll not only see Abraham's faith, but we will see the promises of God and the typology of Christ in these words. We pray, Lord, that you will be glorified, that Christ will be present, and that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit, and that you will lead us into all the truth. For we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. In verse 1, we now have another incident in the life of Abraham, another major incident in his life. We just have a few more chapters of Abraham, 23, 24, and then 25. Abraham dies in chapter 25. So this major incident. Um, Some have, uh, the Jewish scholars, they have said that this is the tenth uh, uh, of the final major tests of Abraham's life. However, they enumerate them. There are other tests that are coming up in chapters 23, 24, especially uh, in those chapters, but... This is a major test, whatever we might call it. And it says after these things, after the events of the preceding chapters, and even in the preceding chapter, Isaac was born, 
and he was weaned, and then Hagar and Ishmael are driven out of the household because of the persecution against Isaac in that incident. Well, then we have in our chapter another major incident or dilemma or test or trial that comes upon Abraham. In verse 1, it says God tested Abraham. He tested Abraham. This is a test for Abraham. It's for Abraham's benefit. It's necessary for Abraham's life. And it's not just in Abraham's life. This word test, though it's used of Abraham and others throughout the scriptures, James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 2, explains that tests are not just for Abraham, but they are also for you and me. James 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The Apostle James, he tells us to consider it all joy whenever a test is before us. Uh, Various kinds of trials or tests, because when our faith is tested, it produces endurance. So endurance will not take place unless the test takes place first. Testing is preceding endurance. And then endurance has a perfect result, making us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we must understand the purpose of tests. The purpose of tests is to produce endurance, perfect result, perfection, and completion, so that we're not lacking in anything. However, let's also look at James 1.12 and keep in mind the mind that we should have on this test. James 1.12, we'll read 1.12 to 13. One twelve. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So one twelve is like one two to uh, two to four. We are blessed when we persevere under trial, and we will receive the crown of life, approval, crown of life that God has promised to us, we who love him. However, that's the right way to look at the tests and the trials. But verse 13 is the wrong way. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We cannot, whenever we are presented with a trial... Consider it a trial that is intended to tempt us to sin, to tempt us to do evil. God's purposes or God's intentions are not to trip us up so that we commit sin and we do evil. God does not do it for that purpose. He does it to manifest our fruit, to, to manifest the faith that's in our heart, to manifest it on the outside by our obedience. That's his purpose in doing it. So whenever we do sin, the blame should go on us. As he says in verses uh, 14 and 15, when we are carried away into sin, we are enticed by our own lust. Lust conceives 
and it gives birth to sin. Sin is accomplished, and then it brings forth death. That's not what's happening in Abraham's case, as we know from reading the, the passage further. He's going to be faithful and do the opposite of all this. He's going to persevere under trial. He's going to consider all joy when he undergoes various trials, and even this severe trial of being commanded to offer up his own son on the altar. That's the kind of faith he had and that is manifested here. So, God calls to him in verse 1, Genesis 22, 1, Abraham, and Abraham with alacrity, with swiftness, he says, here I am. He's saying, I'm ready. When God calls, the servant of God says, the slave of God says, I'm here, I'm ready. You called, and I'm ready to do your will. He doesn't uh, bemoan that God is calling, okay, now what God do you want now? He doesn't have that attitude. That's the wrong attitude to have. When God calls, He's calling to call our attention to do something, to obey something, to believe something, to know something, and we should with eagerness say, here I am. What do you have for me today? That's the way Abraham was. That's how and why he answers, here I am. And then the content, verse 2. And he, God said, God said this to Abraham, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. After the promises have been confirmed, that is, Ishmael will not be, be the son of promise, but Isaac is the son of promise. Ishmael is now gone. Now, at this point, with only Isaac in the household, this is what God commands Abraham to do to Isaac. Your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. All of these qualifiers are there. Your son, well, we know he had two, Ishmael and Isaac. Your only son, only son, only special son, only son by Sarah, only son that's left in the house now, whom you love. He loved both of them, but he had a more particular love for Isaac because Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael had physical promises, and he was naturally the son of Abraham. But in the case of Isaac, Isaac had not just the physical promises, but the spiritual promises and the faith that Abraham had, Isaac would have. And so there was greater significance in Isaac. And then Isaac would be the ancestor of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the ultimate promised seed or offspring of Abraham. Now, when Abraham heard this, inevitably he would have had some thoughts, some feelings towards his son Isaac. But God is telling him, Yes, take Isaac and go to the land of Moriah. Go there and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, he was living in Beersheba, the land of Moriah, or the mount, mountains of Moriah, in that area, that's the area of Jerusalem, which would have been about a 40-mile journey. On, on foot and on donkey, donkey and foot, about a 40-mile journey. And remember, Abraham is an old man at this point. At this point, Abraham um, 
is about 125 years old. Isaac is probably at least 25 years old, maybe as much as 36 years old, but at least about 25 years old. That's how old Isaac is. So Abraham is old and Isaac is old enough, old enough to go on this journey, three-day journey with Abraham. And in this way, he's had him in his household for a while, for 25 years. So in this way too, he is beloved because he raised him up in his household. He has interacted with his own son for 25 years. This is the son that is supposed to be offered as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. Because that area in the land of Moriah or Jerusalem, it had a few mountains. So one of the mountains specifically was to be the mountain where this burnt offering was to take place. Now, when we think of this, uh, we might, uh, we have to think of a couple of things. One, normally in the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, it is wrong, it is a sin, and it is a heinous sin and evil, gross evil, to offer your own flesh or any human body as a sacrifice to God or to the gods, the idols of the world, right? Especially if we read in the book of Kings, they are, the people, evil people are doing it constantly and God is constantly telling them that that's wrong. We might even read about it in Jeremiah, that they are doing it, but it is wrong to do it. So, though they do it and it's wrong, here God is commanding it to be done. So, what principle is in view here? Whatever God says, whatever God's will is, in any occasion, is righteous and good. Whatever God's will is, in any occasion, it's righteous and good. And so the man of faith, like Abraham and all of us, whenever we hear God saying anything in Scripture our immediate response should be. It's not always, but it should be. That's right, and that's good. Even though at the moment we might have doubts, at the moment we might be perplexed, at the moment our flesh might arouse itself and say, no, that doesn't seem right. That can't be right. That can't be good. It might do that, but we have to have faith like Abraham did and like many others did, whatever God says is right and good. Now, this is a very odd incident, right? It's an exceptional incident. We know that Abraham did not eventually slay him, but the intention to slay him in any other circumstance would be sin. Both the intention to sin and the commission of sin, both are sins, right? Just like we read in James Chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, where we read there, we, we conceive it, and then we do it, we accomplish it, and it brings forth death. The consequence is death. So, sinning on the inside, in our heart, and then sinning with our hands and our actions, both are sins. And in, but in this case, Abraham's intentions, Abraham's three-day journey, Abraham's preparation, Abraham placing Isaac on the altar, all of these were what God told him to do, 
but in no way did Abraham sin up to that point, even though God commanded it. But if we were to do it based on the flesh, based on the world, based on false religion, if we were to do it, it would be sin. Even if we'd never uh, slew our son, up to that point, it would have been a sin to us. And especially if we had slain our son, it would be a sin, right? And we should not be alarmed or surprised. This is a principle in Scripture. Whatever God says, whatever God does is right and good. A couple of quick examples. Um, We are not supposed to ever go about naked, are we? No. But Isaiah was commanded to do that as a sign to the wicked people in Isaiah chapter 20. He was called to do that naked and barefoot for three years. Now, when we marry, we're not supposed to marry uh, fornicating women, prostituting women, are we? No, we're supposed to marry godly women. But Hosea the prophet in the book of Hosea chapter 1, he was commanded to marry a wife of harlotry, it calls her, a wife of harlotry. He was commanded to do that. And things, so things like that happen in Scripture. And that's what's happening here with Abraham. Because God said it, therefore it's right and it's good. And Abraham believed that. That's why he carried on these actions. Even though the son of promise was Isaac, he still obeyed. Further, verse 3. Notice how he prayed, uh, how he obeyed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He arose early in the morning, presumably as visions often are, are visions of the night or dreams of the night when God appears to the prophets. And remember, Abraham is a prophet at uh, Genesis 20, verse 7, calls him a prophet. Abraham is a prophet who receives visions from God. If it happened at night, the moment he could get up, first thing in the morning, he rose early in the morning and obeyed, saddled his donkey, took two young men, took his son, he split the wood, he went, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He didn't wait days or months, or years, he did it immediately. This also shows his eagerness to obey the will of God. Once he knows it, he obeys it. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. On the third day, he raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Now, based on verse Verses 2 and 4, 2 and 4, we see that he has to offer up his only beloved son, right? And then in verse 4, on the third day. Well, on this third day, once he arrives there, this is the same third day, three days from the time he was given the command to the time that he carries it out, and... He, we know he receives his son back. He never actually died, but he receives him back. And in a sense, it's an illustration or a type, right? On the third day, he received him back. 
So from the first day to the third day, the first day he would have to consider his son Isaac a dead man. Yeah. Though the death had not actually occurred, he, in his mind he would have to consider him a dead man because God announced him as dead on that first day of the vision. But on the third day, he received him back alive. He didn't die. So, in these ways, this is a type of Christ. That Christ is God's only begotten Son, His beloved Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this is the Son that was raised from the dead on the third day. Literally, <coughs> this is a symbol or type, a shadow of those future events in Abraham's life. Verse 5, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. The young men are to remain, and we know from verse 3, there's two young men. Now, these two young men might not only be young men, but they might be his servants. Young men or servants. Because this word may be used of, of both, okay? So then he's got the, the two servants. He wants them to stay so that he goes apart and con conducts this worship and then returns. He calls him in verse 5, the lad. The lad or the young man. Another word for young man. We don't use that word lad that much these days, but boy or lad, a, a young man. Uh, that's what Isaac is called by Abraham. Now, don't let this word lad make you think of a lad or a boy that might be five or ten years old, okay? Or even 15 years old. Don't make, it think, make you think that way because in the original language, this word is the same word that we find in Exodus 33, 11. And in Exodus 33, 11, it's said of Joshua. Joshua is called the same word, the lad, but it, the translation will probably at that point just call him a young man. Perhaps in this place, they didn't choose to do so because they wanted to make a distinction between the two young men or servants and the young man, Isaac. But here, it's translated the lad. Well, Joshua, in Exodus 33, 11, at that point, minimally, he was 45 years old. And the upper limit might be about 55 years old. So he was somewhere either 45 or 55 years old in Exodus 33, 11. Joshua, the assistant or servant of Moses, he was either 45 or 55, and this word lad is used of Joshua. In other words, either you are a lad or an elder in the Hebrew language. Either you're in one major category or in another major category. Not that there's no subcategories, such as little ones or infants, yes, but either you're a lad or you are an elder. And in this case, this does not subvert the idea that Isaac was about 25 years old. And also, he had to be about that age since he's going to carry the wood on which he's going to be placed on the altar, right? A five-year-old would not be able to carry the amount of wood that's necessary, and not even a 10-year-old, but a 25-year-old 
assuming he's got the <coughs> average stature of a 25-year-old, then he would be able to carry the wood. So that's who's going over there or yonder. And then, notice he says in 5, we will worship and return to you. In English, when we say we will worship and return to you, the subject of both verbs is we, right? We will worship and implied, we will return. We will worship and we will return. Abraham says this. And he's telling the truth. He's not (coughs) lying, right? Abraham's not a liar. So he's not lying to his two young men. We will worship and we will return. And he's not lying in the ears of Isaac. We will return. He's not lying. He's telling the truth. So if... Uh, Now, before I explain what he's implying, um, a few years ago, somebody approached me with a Hindi Bible, the Hindi language Bible. And he asked me if in the original language, in the Hebrew language, whether it says, we will worship and we will return, or does it say, we will worship and I will return? Because in his Hindi Bible, it said, I will return. So I double-checked, and when I double-checked, I found that it is plural for both verbs. We will worship, and we will return. It's nice to have the same language, isn't it? But why would it be that a translator, unless he just made a a mistake, just made a mistake, it just happened to be a typo, some kind of mistake. If we assume that he did it intentionally, why would a translator do that? A translator would do that because... He didn't want Abraham to be portrayed as a liar, and he would say, probably think, Abraham didn't know what was going to happen. Abraham didn't have faith that even if he had slain his son Isaac, that God would raise him up from the dead based on the previous promises that had to be fulfilled in the exact person of Isaac. Perhaps the translator thought all, all of that was impossible, and and so therefore he translated it, I will return. However, we can't do that. In fact, we can't do it grammatically, and we cannot do it theologically and biblically. We cannot do it, because (coughs) grammatically it doesn't fit, because the Hebrew word is we will return, not I will return. English has it, and many other languages have it, we will return, and Not only that, theologically, Abraham is a man of faith, and Abraham did know that if whatever might happen to Isaac, even if he himself had to slay Isaac, Isaac had to be raised from the dead for all of the promises to be fulfilled in him and through him. It had to be that way. And why do we say that? Let's look at a couple of places where we do see that Abraham had such faith. Okay, that he looked forward beyond Isaac, the promises that would be fulfilled in his own son. He looked beyond Isaac throughout his life, throughout his life of faith. The first example is John chapter 8. John 8, 56. John 8, 56 to 59. Christ is debating the Jews. And 8, 56, he says... Your father, Abraham, 
rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In verse 56, your father Abraham. When he says your father Abraham, he means your literal father. By genealogy, not by faith, but by genealogy, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. What does he mean? What does Christ mean? Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ, the day that Christ would enter into the world and pay the penalty for Abraham's own sins, rise from the dead three days later, and all of the other elements of the gospel. Abraham rejoiced to see Christ accomplish all of this. Because he says, he saw it, and then repeats it, and was glad. Repeats the joy part of it. He rejoiced and was glad. This definitely Abraham experienced. So this would explain in Genesis 22 how Abraham looked beyond all of his contemporary activities, all of the things that he was expected to undergo through trials and tests because he was putting his faith in Christ. And the Jews know Abraham, or that Jesus is talking about Abraham during Abraham's life. Right. He's not talking, Jesus is not talking about Abraham after Abraham's death or in some other phase of Abraham's existence. He's talking about Abraham while Abraham was a prophet during these chapters in the book of Genesis because of verse 57. The Jews therefore said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? How is it that Abraham knew all of these things? How could you say that he knew about you when you're not even 50 years old, Jesus of Nazareth? You're not even 50 years old. And Abraham lived 2,000 years before us. So how could you see him? Because if you did see him, then we could understand that you appeared to him, you revealed yourself to him, you revealed your promises to him, and one of which was that eventually you would come into the world in physical form, take upon human flesh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. Then we could understand that that was the case. But there's no way you, not even 50 years old, lived or saw Abraham in a miraculous way 2,000 years ago. That's what their objection is to Christ. And Christ answers that objection. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He takes upon, Christ takes upon himself the name of God, I am. Right. Translated name, I am. Taken from Exodus 3, 14 and 15. They knew he was doing that. They knew he was claiming to be God in human flesh or deity possess a divine nature to be deity, and because he possesses deity, he could, whenever he wants, appear to Abraham. Yep. And he could have done that 2,000 years ago. 
That's what they knew he was claiming. Because they didn't believe that Jesus of Nazareth possessed the divine nature, was the I am in human flesh, that's why in 59, they think he's blaspheming God, so they want to put him to death. But Abraham believed it, and they did not believe it. This is what Abraham believed about Christ. Also Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 17. Hebrews eleven seventeen, what Abraham anticipated. Eleven seventeen. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Shall be called or shall be named. 19. He, Abraham, considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham considered God able to raise men from the dead, from which he also, Abraham also, received Isaac back as a type, or as a parable, as an illustration, as a shadow of the future substance in Christ. So, here the scripture is telling us, Abraham had faith, he was tested, offered up Isaac, Abraham received the promises, but Abraham also received the promise that Isaac would be the son of promise. So if Isaac is the son of promise, what did Abraham understand? Verse 19 tells us, Abraham understood that if he slew his son Isaac, that God would raise him up from the dead. That didn't happen. That's why Abraham said, we will worship and return to you. That if he slew his son, he would, God would raise him up from the dead because he had to be, Isaac had to be alive for these promises to be fulfilled. Right. And then when he did receive him back from the dead, he, all of this was a type, a type, a parable, an illustration of the coming work of Christ. So then we have to ask, in Hebrews eleven nineteen. Received him back as a type? A type for whose benefit? A type for Abraham's benefit alone? A type for our benefit alone? Or a type for everyone's benefit who believes these things? I think the answer is the last. A type for everyone's benefit who believes these things. And why? Why? It says in Romans 4, Romans 4, 22, Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. 
This is speaking of Abraham who was reckoned righteous. And it's not only for his sake, and it's not only for our sake. It says in verses 23 to 24, not his sake only, but for our sake also. So it's for his benefit and for our benefit, which implies that it's for the benefit of of all believers to be reckoned righteous. And how are we reckoned righteous? If we believe, just as Abraham believed, in Jesus our Lord, who was raised from the dead, delivered up or crucified because of or for our transgressions, and was raised because of or for our justification. Abraham believed in the death and resurrection of Christ, and so do we. And this is what justifies us and forgives us of our sins. This, I think, is what was happening in Abraham's mind from Genesis chapter 22, when he says, we will worship and return to you. He has that kind of faith in the supernatural God in whom he put his faith. Verse 6, Genesis 22, 22:6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, So the two of them walked on together. So the supplies are there. The two of them walk on together. See in verse uh, verse 6, so the two of them walked on together. Then notice in verse 8. Verse 8. After Isaac inquires, it says in verse 8, so the two of them walked on together. Before Isaac knew anything, we'll see that in a moment, Isaac in verse 7, presumably up to this point, Isaac didn't know what was going to happen to himself. Isaac did not know what was going to happen to himself based on what it says in verse 7. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. They walk on together, and why does it say walked on together? Because they walk in harmony, right? Just as the four of them had uh, an agreement to go on this trip, a three-day trip, now the two of them are in agreement to proceed forward. And this agreement is maintained before Isaac is told the purpose of his own presence there. Verse 6, right? So the same harmony that was there before Isaac realizes that he himself that he himself is going to be bound and because he says where is the lamb for the burnt offering Isaac knows about burnt offerings he knows how this works he doesn't know and then in verse 8 he did not uh, he said Abraham says God will provide for himself So the two of them walked on together. There's still harmony. Then after Isaac realizes that he himself is going to be placed on this altar, verse 9, notice. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He's a 25-year-old young man, right? He has to be bound. A 125-year-old father is going to 
bind him and place him on the altar, right? So this, I think, is indicating verses 6 and 8 and 9, especially with the dilemma presented, where is the burnt offering? Where is the sacrificial lamb? Where is it? By verse 9, Isaac realizes it's he himself, yep. right? Yep. He has to by that by, by that time, he has to know. So this, I'm trying to show you that even though Isaac did not know until that point, once he knew he had faith and he was agreeable, as agreeable and eager as Abraham, his father. This indicates that Isaac did not kick and scream because Isaac could have kicked and screamed and ran away, right? Sure. He could have done that, but he didn't. And he let himself be bound like this. And why is this important? Because this is what Christ did. Christ did. Let's illustrate yeah, yeah. that Christ did this. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Verse 17. 10, 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. The Father loves me for this reason. Didn't Abraham continue to love Isaac for the very reason that Isaac was willing? Right? So Abraham's love continued when Isaac was willing to be placed on the altar. And then in 18, no one has taken it away from me. Just as Isaac could have ran away, Christ could have denied it, but he says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I lay it down on my own initiative. Christ is not doing it reluctantly. He's doing it with eagerness. He's doing it voluntarily. I lay it down on my own initiative. Uh, initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. I have authority to do both. Not only to die, but to rise again. Right. And this commandment I receive from my Father. Just as at that critical point in verses 7 to 9 in Genesis 22, Abraham announced at around that time, Isaac, it's you. So the commandment that Abraham received from God earlier in the chapter, Abraham conveys that to Isaac at the right time, and Isaac says, yes, I will do it. Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, verse 5, Hebrews 10, verse 5. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says... Who is the he who comes into the world? Christ. Christ. And he says. And when Christ says it, he's saying it to the Father. We'll see that by verse 7. He says, he's, the Son says to the Father, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. 
In the roll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. So Christ now, also here, announces that he's coming into the world to do the will of the Father. And he's not saying it reluctantly, begrudgingly. He's not saying it that way. He's saying it with joy and eagerness. I, and in Psalm 46 to 8, which is not quoted as such here, um, it has the phrase, I delight to do your will. It says in Psalm 46 to 8, I delight to do your will, O God. And then, was this accidental? Was this all accidental? Either in the mind of God for Abraham and Isaac, or in the mind of God the Father for His one and only Son, Christ our Lord. No, it was not accidental. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. 20 and 21. It says, He was foreknown, which means lovingly chosen in advance. To be foreknown means to be lovingly chosen in advance. And when was he, Christ, foreknown? Before the foundation of the world. Right. So there's no accident. There's no plan B. Before time, before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This was all purposed and decreed before the foundation of the world, that God would save us in Christ. And even the temptation or the test to Abraham was ordained before the foundation of the world to illustrate the coming work of Christ. Right. One more place, and that's Revelation 13, 13, 8. Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. It says here that we who do not worship, we do not worship the beast, are those um, whose names are in the book of life. But if we're not written in that book, then we will worship the beast. And it says, this book, notice it's been from the foundation of the world, which means before the foundation of the world, in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Or if your Bible says that he's been slain before the foundation of the world, in either case, what do we have? Before the creation of the world, before time and matter, in eternity, the Father and the Son have decreed to have a certain number who do not worship the beast, their names are in the book of life, and it's the book that is owned by the Lamb, and he will be slain for those people written in that book of life. Right. Which means there's no accidents. No accidents, no plan Bs, no arbitrariness, no capriciousness in the mind of God. It's all according to his providence, all according to his sovereignty, all according to his control. That's what Jesus did on our behalf. Illustrated in Isaac, saying, yes, Father, go ahead and do 
what God has told you. Okay, now let's return to Genesis 22 and verse verse 8. Verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. I think the key phrase here is for himself. For himself. He will, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Why do I say I think the phrase for himself is key here to understand what Abraham is meaning? Abraham is not talking about the ram later that would be caught in the thicket. No. I don't think Abraham thinks that God's going to take care of this command he gave me by giving us a ram later. I don't think that's it because God's not pleased with the lamb. Right. Isn't that what we read in Hebrews 10, 5 to 7? Sacrifice and burnt offerings you have not desired. Right? So that's not going to make God happy. And... Abraham is not lying about his own son or to his own son about him, putting him on the altar and killing him because Isaac would not, never have been a proper lamb for God, right. for himself. So the only lamb that would be a proper lamb for God himself is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right. John 1.29 and John 1.36, the lamb of of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in 1 Peter, in the passage we were just reading just before, in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, it says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. It is the blood of Christ which is precious, unblemished, and spotless like a lamb. Like a lamb. I think that's what Abraham believed. If we take into account what we've said earlier about verse 5 and what we will say later in this passage. Abraham believed that. That that's where Abraham's faith should rest. That's where Isaac's faith should rest. And everything else in between... God will take care of. He knew that. Okay. Now let's go to verse 10. Isaac is on the altar. He's bound and laid there. Verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Abraham is willing to go to this point. But as he stretches out his hand to take the knife to do so to his son, the angel of God or messenger of God, this angel is not a created angel. It's not one of the innumerable heavenly hosts. Right. It's not one of those angels. This angel is a messenger or an, the ultimate prophet or the ultimate apostle, according to Hebrews 3 verse 1. This ultimate messenger of God is Christ himself. Right. We saw the first occurrence of this expression in Genesis 16, 7 to 14. And there in Genesis 16, 7 to 14, he makes promises to Hagar. And Hagar realized that she was in the presence of God 
And yet she lived. She was in the presence of God. She deserved to die because she was a sinful woman. Yet God spared her and she lived. And she was amazed to be in the presence of God. And this, this, in this occasion, it's uh, from heaven that this oracle is announced. But whether, but especially on earth, whenever we have an appearance of God on the earth, including the incarnation, it has to be Christ. It has to be Christ. Whether the pre-incarnate Christ or the incarnate Christ, we say that on the basis of John 1, 18. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. No one or no man has seen God at any time, which means no one has seen the Father at any time. But the Son explains or reveals the Father. And that's who it is right here in verse 11. We'll see a confirmation of that. For example, in verse uh, 16, by myself I have sworn. By myself. God swears by himself because there's no one greater. God swears by himself. So there's no one greater than God. And that's why it must be God revealing himself to Abraham. Here in verse 11, Abraham's name is called twice. Why? To ensure that he not bring his hand down or arm down to slay his son. Called twice because God did not intend for it to go all the way. And Abraham responds, here I am. Immediately. He obeys again. Even though he was in the middle of an action, his arm was, his hand was stretched out, he had the knife, even though he was right in the middle of it, he knew he had to obey God whenever God speaks. So he hesitated. He stopped. And verse 12, and he said, that the messenger of the Lord, Christ says, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. There we have me from God, right? Abraham did not spare his only son from God and therefore there's no need because now God knows Abraham fears God. And Abraham knows. Now that is the key actually in verse 12 because this phrase... Now I know that you fear God. Now I know. Didn't God know before this incident that Abraham feared God? Certainly he did. But why does God say it this way? God says it this way because he uses a a human manner of speaking. He uses our way of speaking to describe what it is from our perspective, what God is thinking and doing from our perspective. Now I know does not mean now God himself knows, but he's saying it in a way for us to realize that Abraham has further confirmation that he fears God and it's an encouragement to him. And then we have further confirmation that Abraham fears God or when it happens to to us in our life and we undergo a test and we succeed in that test, we have greater confirmation, encouragement, and consolation that we truly know God and fear God. Because God is constantly 
desiring to manifest fruit in our life, discipleship in our life, godliness in our life, to confirm to us that we are His child, to help us not to help God. This is just a figure of speech. Now, this figure of speech I need to illustrate because false teachers, false teachers, heretics, call, based on this passage and and other similar passages, they say God is not a God of full knowledge. God is not omniscient. God does not know all things past, past, present, and future. God does not know all things. And they also by implication, say, since he doesn't know all things, he is not everywhere, and he's not all-powerful either. So God has become an idol. based on, And this is called, the philosophers like to call it open theism, as though open is a good thing. Like like you're open-minded or something. As though open to be open is a good thing. Kind of like open borders. To have open borders is not a good thing. Really, it's destructive borders, right? It's suicidal borders, because you're going to kill the nation if you have an open border. Just like with open theism. They think it's a good thing. They use a a nice, smooth-sounding word, sugar-coated word, to make it seem like you need to be like God is, be open, open open-minded. So they call themselves open theists. It's also known that even among themselves, they call themselves free-will theists. So they think where we have such freedom in the human will that God doesn't know exactly. He can guess. He can be a good futurist, like economists are futurists. He can be a a futurist like that. He can have a high level of, of predictability. He can be right a lot of the time, but not all the time. So God is more of a futurist to them because he doesn't know with certainty, and he doesn't control with certainty the future. However, all of this is heresy, hogwash, and nobody should believe any bit of it. Okay? Don't even give it any credibility. Let me illustrate with uh, two places, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. The first one in the Old is 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17 which records the incident in the life of Elijah when he helped a widow and her son, and then the widow's son died, and then Elijah raised him up from the dead. Okay? That's the incident of 1 Kings 17. Now, by the time we reach the incident of the death and resurrection, or resuscitation of this son of the widow, earlier... Elijah had performed the miracle of giving her livelihood, right? By the the bowl of flour and the oil, right? He gave her livelihood when she didn't have any money. He performed this miracle, and it says in 1716, 1 Kings 1716, at the end of that first incident, the bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Then 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. Now so far... 
We've had a miracle occur, and it said it happened according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. Now her son is dead, and she comes to Elijah and confronts him. What do I have to do with you, O man of God? Right? Then Elijah raises him up from the dead. Correct? And notice what the woman, the widow, says after her son is raised from the dead. Verse 24, the last verse. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She says, Now I know. Didn't she know before? She knew before that the word in his mouth was truth because everything he had said and done for her was truthful and honest and a man of integrity, right? That's the way he lived before her. And here he, she says, you are a man of God, verse 24. Now I know that you are a man of God. But she knew before he was a man of God because she called him that in verse 18. Oh, man of God. She called him a man of God. She knew he was a man of God. But when she says, now I know, she means I have a further confirmation of it. And I'm happy about it. I have a further testimony or further confirmation that you are a man of God. That's what she means by it. And this is the same phraseology of Genesis 22. Then, New Testament, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. John 6, verse 5. John 6, 5. Jesus... The, the 5,000 are to be fed at this time. John 6, verse 5. Jesus, therefore, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Verse 6. And this, John the Apostle tells us, And this he, Christ, was saying to test him, to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Right. right there. Christ knew what he was going to do, but he asked a question of Philip to test him. He just does it to test him. Then that's all that it is. And that's the same with God testing Abraham here in this chapter. And then finally, back to Genesis 22, 13. 22, 13. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. So it's clear from verses 11 to 13 that Isaac is not slain. That did not happen. And then it also says that there's a ram caught in the thicket. And if your translation happens to say one ram was caught in the thicket instead of behind him, in either case, there's a ram there. Now, that ram could have been uh, roaming around. It could have been um, roaming around there uh, because it was lost, or it could have been a wild one, or it could have been a miraculous one. The text doesn't tell us. But it does tell us that it was a real one by that point. It was a real one. And he offered up this ram in the place of his son. Right. So here we have a further example of a substitution. A substitution. Substitutionary death. 
And this is what happens typically throughout the Old Testament. When the man or the worshiper, the sinner, ought to die, he doesn't die, but God illustrates the fact that he deserves to die, but he's not going to die by commanding that the sinful worshiper bring an offering of an animal to the temple for the for the animal to die instead of the worshiper. And that's to illustrate the fact that we deserve death, eternal death, the second death of the lake of fire, but instead of us dying that way, Christ was sent by the Father to take our place, in our place, the burnt offering in the place of His Son, like that. That's what this is illustrating. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.